You are listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. This week, we talked to Jewel Gatling and Angela Fontaine of the Richmond Civilian Review Board Task Force to discuss how the task force came about, the barriers that they are facing, the obstacles they've overcome, and what we can expect moving forward. Stay tuned as we spill the tea on the CRB here on Race Capital. You are listening to Race Capital Reframe on the week of May 26, 2021 with Nomi Isaac, Chelsea Higgs-Wise, and Kalia Harris. Let's jump right into the reframe this week with local news. This week in the eviction watch, there are currently 174 unlawful detainers on the books in Richmond courts. Just as a reminder to our listeners that unlawful detainers are the first step that a landlord takes to evict a tenant from their homes. We will continue our coverage as we await the outcome of the federal eviction moratorium ban litigation happening now in the courts. The Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority is planning to privatize public housing. Under the proposed annual agency plan, the RRHA would turn over the Creighton Court to private developers, meaning the authority would no longer own nor operate most of its housing stock. The RRHA is the largest such housing authority in Virginia, responsible for managing over 3,000 units across the Commonwealth. Most of these homes are concentrated in Richmond's East End. The plan for Creighton Court and all of the city's public housing units is to largely turn them over to private companies without a guaranteed one-to-one replacement. So y'all, let's break down again. What is the one-to-one replacement urgency? What does that mean? So they're talking about, you know, building homes without making sure that there is an affordable replacement, there's an affordable option still available for those seeking public housing. Like right now, what they're doing is basically eliminating any accessibility for low-income families to attain housing in the city. Right. So these mixed-income communities that will be replacing the RRHA communities will only hold a very limited amount of quote-unquote affordable housing units. So the people that are living there right now will not be able to afford the new units there and only be a handful of people that even have an option of applying. So... As we know that this has been the long time plan for our RHA and our most affordable housing in the city, which is to remove them completely. The RRHA will hold a comment period on their annual agency plan up through July 2nd and with an online public meeting scheduled two weeks from now on Wednesday, June 9th. Yesterday, a federal judge signed an order detailing the steps required of the Virginia Employment Commission in order to end the backlog of unpaid unemployment claims and to identify and pay Virginians who are owed money because their benefits were wrongly terminated while they waited for their cases to be reviewed. The lawsuit was brought forth by the Legal Aid Justice Center, Legal Aid Works, and Virginia Poverty Law Center. The judge's order goes into effect immediately. And I just know so many folks have had a headache with unemployment. So I'm, I'm glad to see some good news coming out in Virginia. This week, the city responded to the op-ed written in the New York Times by LeVar Stoney as a part of the paper's George Floyd anniversary coverage. In his 1,500-word piece, Stoney told his version of the events that happened last summer and claimed credit for removing the monuments and said he was, quote, committed to action that will promote equity in Richmond, end quote. 
Yesterday, as the world recognized the passing of one year since George Floyd's murder by Minneapolis police, here at home in Richmond, we reflected on last year as well. On the front page of Richmond Times-Dispatch, our host, Kalia Harris, shared her reflections over the last year and told the truth that we were all thinking about Stoney's op-ed. Yep, y'all. I sat down with Sabrina Moreno and just had to spill the tea that was really on all of our minds that Stoney really had the time to write a piece for another city's paper about his reflections, take credit for everything, really just kind of understate the violence that we all went through, and then went and raised money off of that in an email. So yeah, it was it was great to be featured in the piece. But I think more importantly, I'm glad that on this day, someone was able to speak the truth over LeVar's lives. I don't know how he going to talk about taking down Confederate monuments when they tear gas people at that very same hour, if not. You know, like, how can you talk about act as if you're a champion for George Floyd when the people who are protesting conditions that led to George Floyd being targeted by the police and becoming a victim of police violence were happening on that same day you were taking down monuments? Like, pack it up, LeVar. Lest we not forget how he really tried to pretend he was out in these streets marching at that same protest where people were booing him. I mean, Kalia, one part of the article that really stood out is that you were able to name some of the community wins. Can you list out some of those right now? So, of course, like we're talking about in our episode today, the creation of the Richmond Civilian Review Board Task Force, the fact that we have three Black women running for governor, the fact that we were in the streets for 100 days, over 100 days last year, and galvanized popular support behind the demand to defund the police. And people feel so empowered to really hold folks accountable and hold their feet to the fire over this issue, even a year later. These are huge, huge wins, not to mention all of the community care systems that we have nurtured over the last year, like the Richmond Mutual Aid and Disaster Relief, the community fridges that at this point we see them pop up all over the city. There are just so many huge wins. Do y'all feel like there are any that come to mind for you when you're thinking about the last year? For me, definitely with the bail fund, the capacity to actually have us get folks out of cages has grown exponentially after the summer. And so that I look at that as a huge community win every single day that we actually have the, the money to move people out of out of prisons. And absolutely repealing the simple possession of marijuana right here, becoming the first state in the South to do that. That was absolutely the work of last summer. So wins on wins on wins. So the Times-Dispatch also featured Princess Blanding as she reflected over the last year and how the uprisings inspired her historic run for governor in Virginia. Reporters Allie Rocket and Chris Suarez also published an article entitled, quote, Mayor Stoney wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times reflecting on last summer. Here's what he left out, end quote. The article fact checks LeVar's op-ed and y'all, they brought the receipts. We're talking eyewitness accounts and RPD Twitter screenshots. Y'all, I was so hyped when I saw the title. I hadn't even read it yet. And I put it in the group chat, like the title. Not to mention the empty column where the police had the opportunity to give a statement on their reflections from the last year and they refused to comment. So RTD ran an entire just empty column of space. Nicely played. That's how their budget should be looking, y'all. Empty like that column. Yes, let's wake it up. 
Trigger warning for our audience, the next story contains graphic content. Dylan Roof, the white supremacist who is currently on death row for shooting and killing nine people in a black South Carolina church, started the appeal of his conviction and sentencing in Richmond yesterday. In 2017, Roof became the first person in the country to be sentenced to death for a federal hate crime. Before a three-judge panel here in Richmond, Roof's attorneys argued that an appellate court should vacate his convictions and death sentence or remand his case to court for a, quote, proper competency evaluation, end quote, something they argue wasn't done during his trial in 2017. Court documents state Roof stood trial while mentally ill under the, quote, delusion he would be rescued from prison by white nationalists, end quote. But he believed that rescue would only happen if he kept quiet about his mental state. All of the judges in the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers South Carolina, have recused themselves from hearing Roof's appeal. The case is now in the hands of the panel of three judges from several other appellate circuits. There is no word yet on when a decision could come down. So as we can see, as the judges recuse themselves, that it appears the white nationalists are already rescuing him from his prison sentence. This delusion might not actually be so delusional. All I'm saying. Interesting that it's being heard here in Richmond. Capital of the Confederacy. LeVar said that it's no longer the capital of the Confederacy. Lioness LeVar. Well, moving on to national news, we'll kick it off with our COVID watch, where there have been just under 33 million total COVID cases reported since the start of the pandemic in the United States, with 587,830 total deaths. Nationally, the numbers are actually currently trending down with about a 19.5% drop in the weekly average of total cases reported to the CDC. Y'all know how I feel about the CDC, but moving on. In vaccination news, nationally, about 39.5% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated. Locally, there have been about 673,000 total cases and 11,137 deaths in Virginia. According to the Virginia Department of Health, about 34.6% of Richmonders are fully vaccinated. Yo. I know y'all been seeing these masks off. I also wonder how many folks are still still self-reporting. And I am curious, I looked at the numbers, but I'd be curious to see them analyze about testing and how much people are actually still going to get tested at all. So anyone's listening, I would love to know. I do appreciate people that are being really honest about testing positive now, even after being vaccinated, because that is something that we need to start seeing and feeling locally. And I know I've seen it up in my timeline of people right here in Richmond happening too. Well, y'all, the International Monetary Fund recently introduced a $50 billion proposal to end the coronavirus pandemic by vaccinating at least 40% of the population in all countries by the end of the year and 60% by the end of 2022. IMF officials claim that this initiative would inject nearly $9 trillion into the global economy. Just want to say I am not surprised that the IMF is making an economic argument, but I would love to see them actually put some money behind this proposal. If y'all read the language in the proposal, they're talking about arrest in the coronavirus. They're talking about, <laughs> you know, the our humanity being deeply tied to our, our economic state. Like, it's just a lot. Like, the money is definitely first in mind. Always skeptical of the IMF. They are not a friend of ours. 
And so many people supposedly owe them so much money. And so I'm wondering why they're projecting out this money that it would cost when we know that they have access to the amount of money that it would cost in the coronavirus pandemic. Like we don't need to hear it. We need to see it. We need to see it. Well, continuing our national coverage a year after the murder of George Floyd and the news that surprises absolutely no one. Time Magazine reports that since June 2020, police have killed people in the U.S. at virtually the same rate that they have been for the past five years, despite the pandemic that kept many people at home in the house quarantine. They still killing us. As of April 30th of this year, there had only been six days this year on which police did not kill a civilian while on duty, according to the mapping police violence. Jesus. This is why we say that racism and police violence at these things are pandemics may always have been. Also, just, you know, this is all occurring even after the response to their violence last year and the historic violence generally was to just inject hundreds of millions of dollars into police budgets across the nation. They're still killing folks. Well, in Minneapolis, emails obtained through a public records request show that both the Minneapolis Police Department and Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey collaborated with pro-police PR professionals, quote, Operation Safety Now, end quote, in order to lobby city council and sway public opinion in the hopes of winning increased funding for the police budget. Though the connection has never been publicly stated, The Minneapolis reformer reports that Operation Safety Now is a project of another group, MPLS Voices, an organization that is connected to several local politicos and business owners who have been identified in emails as leaders of the group. While Operation Safety Now's existence pales in comparison to local grassroots organizations working to defund the police, they have had an outsized voice on one of the most significant issues in Minneapolis history. On June 7th of last year, nine Minneapolis City Council members pledged to begin the process of ending the Minneapolis Police Department. Since then, some organizers who have been working to defund the MPD since 2018 worked with council members to create a plan to replace MPD, which was met with opposition. So they then honed in on the budget and defunding the police. Opposition to these efforts was spearheaded by Operation Safety Now, as well as the mayor and police department's records show. Beyond funding for the MPD, the group is organizing around several proposed ballot initiatives that would amend the city charter. They support the first, which would overhaul the city charter to shift power from the city council to the mayor. They oppose others, which would take authority over the police department from the mayor and give it to the city council. This is really interesting. A lot of movement happening we have to keep our eye on. So despite opposition... The movement to defund the police has resulted in many wins, gained traction, and grown in numbers over the last year. Interrupting Criminalization's recent report called The Demand is Still Defund shows that over $840 million were cut from local police departments and $160 million in community investments were gained by organizers across the country, including the first cut to Minneapolis Police Department's budget in over 20 years, a 20% reduction in the Seattle Police Department's budget, and the Truth Out also reports a budget cut and hiring freeze for the Salt Lake City Police Department. 
While these numbers show the wins, interrupting criminalization does warn against taking these budget numbers at face value, as lots of the money was cut and reinvested into police in other ways. Outside of the budgetary wins, residents across the country have been engaged in dialogue about public safety. Asha Ransby Sporn reminds us, Quote, while there's still no shortage of unfinished business for the abolition movement, hundreds, if not thousands of new and old campaigns, organizations, and neighborhood crews have advanced fights to defund the police in what has felt like the longest year ever. Looking towards the summer of 2021 and beyond, abolitionists are positioned to be engaged in deep community building, making sharp demands, continuing to protest, manifesting concrete wins, and offering a vision for a society with a different set of priorities that can benefit us all, end quote. So we went in. Yes, I would argue the demand has moved beyond defund. I mean, the more that they repress the people and the more that folks see them failing, I mean, it's just the more radicalized our community members get. And we coming for all the money. Empty budget columns for the police department. Well, y'all, a North Carolina Court of Appeals judge named John M. Tyson was summoned by a criminal court this month. He was charged with assault with a deadly weapon after being accused of nearly hitting Black Lives Matter protesters at a demonstration on May 7th in downtown Fayetteville, the Washington Post reports. The summons came after local organizer Maya Warren told a magistrate judge earlier this month that Tyson was the one who drove the vehicle that nearly hit her and other demonstrators. She says that she believes Tyson did it intentionally, as he is, quote, a well-known racist, end quote. The city released a video of the incident, which shows the state-owned SUV that Tyson allegedly later drove into the crowd, driving around downtown before going into a lane painted with the words, Black Lives Do Matter, where demonstrators were gathered. Y'all, does this sound a little familiar? It sounds real familiar. I feel like we had a whole incident and interview from it in summer 2020. In congressional news, a recent amendment added to the Endless Frontier Act, a Senate bill meant to strengthen science and technology research, may be laying the groundwork to redistribute 10 billion dollars of NASA funding to Jeff Bezos's spaceflight company, Blue Origin. Blue Origin is one of several companies which have been vying for a contract to send astronauts to the moon for the first time since 1972. The company recently lost in a major bidding process against SpaceX, the aerospace company owned by Tesla CEO Elon Musk. As we can see in this new age of neocolonialism, the rich are still being given massive pieces of the pie, during a pandemic with so many immediate problems and practical budget needs for ordinary people, both parties of the government are prioritizing the further concentration of wealth among the top five wealthiest billionaires in the world. Why do we need to colonize space? <laughs> Leave them alone. I don't get it. And $10 billion? I mean, and just also the way that Jeff Bezos has literally been lobbying, investing millions and millions of dollars into being able to get his hands on this money. We got a water crisis. (laughs) Like, and the options were Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Not loving that. Days after their press building in Gaza was destroyed by Israeli settlers, the Associated Press fired reporter Emily Wilder after she was targeted in a Republican smear campaign for her involvement in Students for Justice in Palestine, 
a pro-Palestinian student group during college. After working for the AP for two weeks, Republicans went after Wilder's past social media posts. Shortly thereafter, the AP announced that Wilder was terminated, citing, quote, unspecified violations of its social media policy, end quote. Since then, over 100 AP journalists have signed an open letter to management protesting the decision to fire Wilder, reports Democracy Now. And moving into international news in Palestine, the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas has continued, but the violence inflicted on Palestinians by Israel has not stopped. The Israeli assault has resulted in the deaths of at least 253 Palestinians. Despite the ceasefire, Israeli officials have arrested hundreds of Palestinian activists and residents. The United Nations is estimating that at least 6,000 residents of Gaza were left homeless after their homes were bombed by Israel, which has maintained a blockade on Gaza for the past 14 years. In Jerusalem, dozens of Jewish settlers backed by Israeli security forces stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound last Friday, and Israeli authorities are continuing the campaign to forcibly evict Palestinians from their homes so more Jewish settlers can move in. I just want to say that it has gotten more quiet in national media about what's happening in Palestine, but I think it's really important that we don't just like come out to one protest and then go home and never talk about it again, because these things that are happening are like extremely violent and we are still giving money. No money has stopped going to Israel to do this stuff since even last week when the ceasefire happened. So I understand that it's easy to kind of keep moving on to the next thing, but solidarity kind of requires us to pause in the moment and actually stay there and keeping an eye on what's going on. And speaking of Western media, led by the Anti-Defamation League, lobbyists across so-called North America are working very hard to weaponize a narrative of anti-Semitism in order to mask the ongoing violence against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. As international theory and solidarity against Israel's illegal occupation of Palestine continues to grow, the American media has given Israeli lobbyists a platform to demonize Palestinian liberationists, alleging that the protests have inspired a nationwide increase of hate crimes against Jewish communities. Y'all, I mean, they're working overtime. I mean, the the links and the the bridges that they're having to jump over to kind of just paint this false reality, right? That the Palestinian folks who are resisting occupation are are truly the ones causing violence and, you know, kind of stirring up a national scare. It's just disgusting. Pack it up. Despite all of this, the Palestinian people continue to resist and fight for their liberation. Raji Sarani, director of the Palestinian Center for Human Rights in Gaza, welcomes the ceasefire, but stressed that Palestinians demand more than just the end of bombing. He says, quote, we need the end of occupation, end of the blockade, self-determination, independence, dignity, and freedom, end quote. Sounds very similar to what we're fighting for here. Ain't no African liberation, no Black liberation, no Chicano liberation, unless there's Palestinian liberation. And if we can disempower the largest, two of the largest uh, militaries in the history of the globe, I mean, imagine what we can do. Take that money. And to wrap up our race capital reframe for this week, 
Democracy Now! reports that Amnesty International is calling on the Biden administration to stop selling U.S.-made weapons and other equipment to Colombia, where police have been violently cracking down on ongoing protests, which are demanding an end to inequality, violence, and militarized policing, and for the end of the fascist right-wing government of President Ivan Duque, as well as a number of social reforms. Protests in Colombia have continued on, as the country has seen nearly a month of demonstrations and thousands of road blockages. Some of the organizations have reached pre-agreements for talks with the government, but they have promised that marches and demonstrations will continue. Again, Naomi, this sounds really familiar. Yes, our struggles are so interwoven. And, you know, that's why we can't just shake it up over here in the Commonwealth. We got to shake it up with our comrades in the Middle East. We got to shake it up with our comrades on continental Africa. We got to shake it up everywhere. So I really definitely hear what Kalia and echo what Kalia said about staying involved in these fights past when, you know, the Western media is glamorizing them and utilizing them for their specific purpose. You know, like we have to stay involved with these fights till the end because our liberation literally depends on it. Yes. And that's all for this week's Race Capital Reframe. Stay tuned as we spill the tea on the CRB with Jewel Gatling and Angela Fontaine of the Richmond Civilian Review Board Task Force. Stay tuned. week on Race Capital, we are really excited to invite Jewel Gatling and Angela Fontaine to the show. They are representing the Richmond Civilian Review Board Task Force. We come with great anticipation for this conversation. So welcome, Jewel and Angela. Thank you so much for having us, Chelsea and Race Capital. (laughs) So with me today, I've got one of our co-hosts, Kalia Harris. Thanks so much for being here. And we just want to give a shout out to our other co-host, Naomi Isaac, who's not joining us, but was always here in spirit. Yes, we have been waiting to talk about Civilian Review Board here and to talk about the meetings that you all have had, the town hall that just happened, and catch up our listeners in Richmond on what is going on when it comes to police oversight. I would love for you all to quickly introduce yourselves and say how you even got on this task force. Uh, Angela, would you mind going first? Sure. Um, So again, Angela Fontaine, thank you so much for having me. Um, My background, I studied criminal justice in college and learned exactly what I didn't want to do with my life. So I, I worked with people to prevent them from being incarcerated or assisting them with transitioning out of incarceration also transitioning out of poverty, which is easier said than done. My city council member showed up in my front yard one day and I had been emailing him. I'd been right after the uh, death of George Floyd. I was trying to get involved with some city initiatives and I was trying to bang on the door of Richmond City Police Department. And it was closed door, closed door, closed door until Mike Jones came in. He was like, hey, we're doing this thing. Can you hop on board? And I was like, of course. So I did the application and here I am. Look at that. I love the persistence knocking on the door to where they got to show up at your door. Okay. (laughs) Jewel. Hey, everyone. I'm Jewel Gatlane. I'm originally from Porson, Virginia, and I majored in sociology, criminal justice at Norfolk State, along at Iowa State for my master's. Came to Richmond about four years ago, 
thankful enough, I connected with this young lady named Chelsea Higgs Wise, who <laughs> has always and not only encouraged, but gave a slight push to that uh, sometimes we all need in uh, regards to volunteering and becoming an active participant in the community here. And so I was here last year and that summer was a wild summer. And I remember the uh, number of what we wanted and a part of that was the civilian review board. And so when it came time for city council to actually vote on it, which uh, a lot of props to you all, a lot of props to those who protested during the summer, our protest was not in vain because here we are right now. And so city council voted for a CRB task force. And that means we will come in, help build the actual CRB. And you know, when they were taking in applications, got a text message from Chelsea saying here, and here's the link, clicked on it, and here we are. <laughs> and you know, y'all, Jewel was not the only one I sent that link to, okay? So it really does take someone taking the initiative to apply, and we really appreciate folks that had their eye on the ground that were out there last summer and understand how important this is from wherever you were doing that work. So can y'all tell us a little bit about how the CRB task force came about. How did we get from last summer to here? It was a little bit bumpy, I have to I have to say. I want to assume that the protests is what really fueled this to get started. Um, I know there was work to get this on this going way before the protest, before COVID and everything. Um, unfortunately, it took some pretty tragic things to happen before people got serious. Decision major makers got really serious. And so here we are. I think we were established as a, a task force back in October of last year. And then there were some people on the task force that were that had a, a law enforcement background. The community was not happy with that. Mm. Um, and some other council members weren't happy with that. So I am here thanks to Race Capital organizing the community and Richmond saying, no, we want a civilian up there because I ended up coming up later. I think I was one of two that was added after the fact because they got rid of, as they should have, retired law enforcement on that task force. Again, little bumps, little mm -hmm. bumps that we can't really call out and say you're messing us up. But it's little bumps. And that's a really important piece to say, because in the statewide legislation, it was very clear that law enforcement is not to be on these boards, but they try to have a loophole because this is a task force, number one. So finding, actually looking through to find a loophole. Number two, I just want to clarify something, Joel. When you say civilian, a lot of times that can be also be exclusive in ways. And I, I believe what you're trying to just say is, community members that are not law enforcement or retired yes. law enforcement. Right. Absolutely. I'm sorry. Yep. Okay. So since March, you all have been pretty busy, Angela. From March until now, uh, we have been extremely busy. Just submitted a budget. We're waiting with our fingers crossed <laughs> to see what our budget's going to be for a partial year next year. So it will pay off. <laughs> we also just want to point to 
a race capital episode that you can search. It's called Who Polices RPD that invites community advocates on the show that were really advocating for this uh, even prior to the summer. Took a lot of the data and a lot of the information that the community had been saying even prior to the protest. And so please visit Race Capital Past Episode Who Polices RPD. And also just to remind everyone about how we got here is in the special session of last year, the Virginia Commonwealth at the state level actually had to allow for localities to be able to create these civilian review boards, particularly with subpoena power, right? They were able to do this, but they did not have the subpoena power to get into the nitty gritty of those police department files. So that was also a big piece that was pushed directly on the ground this past summer that allowed for this Richmond CRB task force to take place. So you you all have kind of touched on it a little bit, but the task force specifically, what is the mission of you all? What we've been tasked with as a CRB task force are three major components. And those would be the actual getting together and writing out the function of what the CRB will look like here for Richmond. And I'm not just saying in Richmond, I'm saying for Richmond, because we want to make sure that it is particular and it is specific to the needs of Richmond citizens. There are other CRB boards happening across the nation, happening across the Commonwealth. And so there will always be a basic foundation, but we want to make sure that we're specific to our needs. Next, we need to talk about, Angela just brought it up, the budget. How much will this cost? We need to make sure that we have enough money so that we can pay the investigators who need to be there, so we can pay the researchers, because it will take time. They will be doing actual investigations into police officers, into those complaints. Last but not least, who will be on the CRB? Because who will be on the CRB can look totally different from the task force. We want to make sure that we have individuals up there that will represent all of Richmond, but I'll be real, and this is just Jewel Gatlin talking, I want to make sure that there are individuals up there that will represent those communities that are targeted by Richmond Police Department. And so that's what we're supposed to do, and we are doing it, but I will tell you, we've had our first town hall, and that was very enlightening, and so I think as individuals, we are new to each other, but we now spend once a week some of us twice a week together for maybe two, sometimes three hours. So we're working together, getting to know each other. And in doing that, we're coming together to make sure we put every piece that needs to be put in place, that this CRB is not only functional, but that it is successful for us. And you all said that you have been meeting every week, sometimes twice a week since you came. And I know... Mm-hmm. That is Wednesdays at 6.30, correct, on Zoom. How long do you all have to meet these three goals? Angela. (laughs) Our final report at this point is due to city council beginning of August. But our goal right now is August 1 to have a final report. And then at that point, our job will be done, maybe. I I still am keeping it open. I want to see this go until we cut the ribbon. You know what I mean? I don't want to take my hands off of it if I can help it. Yeah, we definitely know that our city council and local leadership have a legacy of receiving reports and putting them away to never look at them again. And I just wanted to note that it sounds like you all are a very dedicated 
group of individuals that are coming together from all across the city. You're working hours each week. I've tuned into these meetings that sometimes go school board long. And I just want to say thank you and also ask, how are they supporting you all financially with capacity to do the work that you're doing as a task force? Like, I know we talked about budget for the actual CRB, but how is the task force being supported financially? We have proposed a CRB task force budget because you're absolutely right. In order for us to do what we want to do, we need money. Um, some of the things that we want to do that requires money, we want to host in-person town halls, COVID safe, but things are starting to open up. People get vaccinated. We don't mind meeting in parks. We also want to provide surveys. We want to have electronic and enhanced surveys. And then Chelsea brought it up earlier. We want to knock on doors. We want to knock on doors. That's what's going to come down to. We want to canvas because when we present this report August 1st, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm sharing the same anxiety as Angela is sharing, but I'm fearful they will look at it and be like, oh, this is really cute. We're just going to go with this. I want to be able to say, you can go with that, but everything we've asked for, here is the proof, here is the work, here is the research, here are the numbers showing you this is what the citizens want. That's why we are begging, begging people. Our meetings are public. They are open. Please come up there. Uh, our main meeting is Wednesday at 6.30 every week. I didn't want to confuse anybody because we also host Thursday nights at 6 o'clock, our subcommittee, which is community outreach, which I also feel is just as important. We want to know which communities want us to come out there so we can make ourselves available. We want to know which communities might not know that they need us, but we want to make ourselves available. But it's money that's needed. We're going to present it, and we hope that they give it to us. I will say this. We are a group of individuals. Not all of us are coming from backgrounds of knowing how uh, city council and government works. And we've had assistance from the city. And you can tell those that are very, very into assisting us and very into anytime we have a question, we can. But then there are other matters that happen in which we present something. The city asks us, you know, hey, we need a timeline or we need this. And we rush and we're giving it to them because we haven't even talked about the fact that we are behind. We were supposed to be done in March, done in March. We were t uh, took our oath in March. OK, so I understand that as well. And that's a city issue. So my complaint, again, Jewel Gatlin, only speaking for myself, let, they, I feel as if the city did not specifically come with us and say, hey, this is what you need to do. This is what we want from you. They wait until after we make an action and then they say, oh, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hurry up. Oh, no, you have time for this. There's a confusion coming there. And it's a confusion coming there because it's coming from individuals of a position of power that really don't want us here anyway. Because what happens with CRB? CRB is asking for us to investigate the city's police department, the same police department that the city has not investigated themselves. They have that power. They didn't have to go get subpoena power. Colette McKeesha didn't have to go get subpoena power. She has the power to sit there and to investigate and to pass out. So it's a relationship of knowing that we are working with someone who may not be so keen on our success and with the group of people we have we're good with that because we're going to do it anyway so what you're saying is y'all are working for free right now yes absolutely 
completely okay. for free. And it is labor. I get off of my regular nine to five and clock right on on to get to do this. There's homework, Angela, that we have throughout the week. I have never Googled, searched so much stuff. I can't even have my notebook with my sheets there. Work, 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 work. And we've been meeting with one-on-one with a lot of the city council members as well. Um, Eli, the co-chair and I, so it's like, luckily I work from home, but it's like, I think one week I probably did CRB work four days out of the week. I mean, when I was in meetings and that's also a barrier because I don't, you know, we, we all have a pretty strong work ethic, but in reality, this is not accessible to a lot of people and it's just a lot of work. We're going to roll with it and do our best. I find it really troubling that the city was willing to spend over $100,000 on a consultant for the casinos and has not been able to fork up the red cents that you all are asking for for this project. And so if they're saying that they actually prioritize, quote, reimagining public safety, end quote, which we know is empty words at this point, then they would have at least put money into this effort. Because if y'all remember, right, this was the one ordinance that passed during that time. We had the looking at the police funding. There was a whole slew of ordinances that they could have passed that were seen as a bit more radical or, you know, not right for the moment. But the CRB task force did pass. And what we're hearing is that they're not putting a whole bunch of money behind it or really even putting the work into it. That's actual labor, like you're saying. And that's money that someone like a consultant would get paid. And clearly the city has the money because they're going all in on the casino stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Like, listen, I am uh, humbled and proud to be on another board and where they had a stipend. And they taught, they stopped their stipend because of COVID, which is understandable, but it was for transportation. It was for food. And this is a board that met once a month. We're meeting once a week until further notice. <laughs> okay. So you all mentioned that Thursdays at 6 p.m. are your engagement times and that you all have had your first town hall. How did that go? And how can people follow these continued town halls? Just for clarification, we take public comment during our regular meetings on Wednesdays at 6.30 also. Uh, we want to, to make this as accessible to everyone. Um, so we've built it into our meetings. And also, and then the community outreach subcommittee meeting is Thursdays at 6. And they also take public comment. The uh, town hall. Um, <laughs> I'll come up here with you. <laughs> I can just, I still, that vision still burning in my head. I'm sorry. For the record, for the (laughs) listeners, this was a loaded question and I knew that. (laughs) She knew it. it. Thanks, Chelsea. Thanks, Chelsea. Um, I think it was a great opportunity to to kind of introduce ourselves to the community. Um, Also, I have to give props to, to Senator Hashmi for keeping her, I mean, her composure was not, she did not skip a beat and um, I was impressed. And with that said, I I was impressed by the community for keeping mature through um, that negative uh, uh, racist and gross things that we saw during the meeting. Um, And that's just another barrier that we have to, we're not provided Zoom conference stuff. We're not provided any 
sort of webinar access. So we're looking into what we can give access to. And I'm like, if I have to pay for out of pocket, like I want it to be a safe place where people can come and express their views. Just want to be clear for the listeners is that the first town hall sounds like it got Zoom bombed. And so it did. Yeah. symbols and, and mm-hmm. language of hate came in the chat. And mm-hmm. that was a moment that you all had to, to navigate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what we're, we're talking about there, which has been happening to Black organizers for the last year, correct, mm-hmm. that have been organizing mm-hmm. online. And again, why these resources of protected Zoomware and, and streaming software is important. Mm-hmm. Anything else to report for that first town hall? And in how often are you all having these? Okay, so with our first town hall, going back on what Angela said, it did give us a chance to introduce ourselves to community, lay out who we are versus what the actual CRB is, um, let them know what we're trying to do. And so we had on our first town hall, Senator Hashmi on, because she was the one that actually carried the CRB bill through the Senate. And then we also had Delegate Jeff Bourne on, someone who was pro-CRB, pro-CRB task force, voted for it. And along with that, we had over 60 people, which is the first time we've ever had that amount of people to come and, you know, participate with us. So that was very heartfelt, very warming to know that the citizens and the community wants us here. And it's also a sign when you have someone to take the effort to come in and throw in hate and racist remarks because they see what is happening and they know which part of this community is um, touching on. And so that's fine. That's cute. I will say, Angela, we've added um, the conference, the webinar Zoom to our task force budget. So hopefully they will give us the money for it because we've had so many people volunteer and say, hey, look, if you want, you can use our uh, credentials to make this happen. Uh, We started the task force by explaining everything, budget, what we mean, and then we opened it up. And we asked people what they wanted. What I took away from it, this is still a new thing with CRB. We wanted to hear what people had to say. And rightfully so, people had questions that we had questions to. And I will say a little bit later on, I said, uh, let me ask something. And so I asked the question, instead of saying, you all tell us what you want, what do you all think about retroactive investigations? And that's when they responded, responded with yes. And for very viable reasons, they want retroactive investigations. Can you explain what is a retroactive investigation? Yes, absolutely. So for example, I saw a Facebook post last week about how it was video of Richmond Police Department physically beating a man on a bus who had an open container. If it was up, and I'll come back to it, to the city attorney who we reached out to and asked for retroactive, we wouldn't, once the CRB has been formed, the actual CRB has been formed, they would not be able to go back to May 1st, 2021 to look at that complaint if a complaint was put in. Retroactive means any complaint of misconduct or brutality prior to the CRB being formulated formed members are placed under oath, cannot be looked at. Or we can put it in there as a task force and say, yes, the CRB should be allowed to conduct retroactive investigations going back to, and we'll have a date. It's very important. We brought this up to the city attorney. 
The city attorney replied back and said, look, I've looked through all the codes. Nothing's there. Nothing to say that you can't do it. Nothing to say that you can do it. Nothing to say somebody has done it. So as a city attorney, I recommend you don't do it. Ding, 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 ding. I don't understand why that is the reason of it. Of course, no one's ever done it before. We're doing a lot of new things, number right, one. Right, right, right. And we're about to set some precedent mm-hmm, right here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it's extra work for them. And, and it sounds like, Jewel, what you said mm-hmm. before about certain entities and players within the institution that are going to show resistance to right. being investigated themselves when they themselves should have also been holding some accountability within the systems. But of course, absolutely. we know that is not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So, and once I brought it up, people brought in very valid, the participants reasons to, to go back and look at older investigations once the CRB is formulated. One of those reasons, there may be a pattern of abuse that we don't know about. And I think that's what we're getting from. What was that? The police officer, Derek, Derek Chauvin. I'm not saying his last name. Is he not yeah. now under new charges or something else? Yeah, federal charges. Because he has a history of the exact same behavior that was reported and Mm -hmm. ignored by the internal investigations done from the police. And what we've seen throughout Richmond, and you can hear more about this in past race capital episodes, are the grievances that had gone over a year without being a consolidated or ever, never heard or just closed without any type of communication. So these past retroactive investigations are important for number one, people's safety, number two, to establish this pattern, and number three, because we know that Richmond is going towards electronic monitoring and we have to have the da- data right as we enter it if we're going to continue to track it the right way as well. So I know that was something that many people appreciated, Jewel, for that particular question. And I know that question was something for even um, certain Commonwealth attorney candidates that none of them were actually really open to past investigation. That's Tom Barber, nor Colin McKeesian, of course. So mm-hmm. now, with that said, that's, you know, ideally we want to be able to adjudicate or see or investigate these complaints, but at the minimum, we'll have access to actual real numbers of what is going on. And that, you know, the CRB can hold officers accountable based on their track record. They just may not be able to actually try or investigate those instances. Um, we can't punish you for this that happened six years ago, but we know it happened. And um, mm-hmm. it's important to note too. Yeah. Yeah, and this is incredibly important. We talked about this a bit on our reframe a couple of weeks ago, but it's important because it could actually inform officers that are on the force right now committing these acts of violence. And something that I've really been thinking about and have heard you all talk about at your meetings is the need for, for retroactivity because as you all as a task force are doing your job, there are people that are still being brutalized by the police like you just told us, Jewel. And the longer that you all need to do your work, which of course you need time, right? You got to do research, outreach, and get everything together. 
But during that time, the police are continuing to ensue with violence in our communities. And so to not be able to go back and look at the things that are happening currently even is really concerning. And then to think back to how people's uh, complaints went years without hearing anything before that. So I do see a real need for retroactive investigations. Um, so we saw that Ali Rocket put out an article in the Richmond Times-Dispatch talking about you all's budget, proposed budget. And it looks like it was about $1.2 million, which frankly seems pretty modest. And what the city committed to was a little bit over $600,000, which is about half, less than half of what you all asked for. And so I'm just wondering, how does that factor into the conversations that you all have about what the CRB looks like, its functions, its abilities, or does it? So at this point, the 1.2 is still for a full budget year. That's, we're not, we have not changed that at all. The problem is the bureaucracy and red tape surrounding when this actually is gonna get off the ground. So we asked for half of that on purpose, knowing that we would only be working in half of a budget year. Um, what happened was once we uh, submitted that budget proposal for a 604, I believe it was, um, and speaking with the council members who are you know, advocating for this and, and that want this to happen, they're like, what we don't want to happen is for you to get 600,000 and you're not able to spend it because it takes time to hire people. It takes time to get all these things off of the ground. Um, HR, Richmond City, you know, I guess it takes a while to come up with the job description. So, you know, on paper, it looks, it doesn't look great that we only might get 200,000 at this point, but I can't say that I'm okay with the the red tape and bureaucracy, but at this point, we just have to get something off of the ground. But for BY 2023, it's still that $1.3 million. Nothing has changed with that. You clarifying the numbers was really helpful. Um, now that um, we've had budget budgets in, we're just waiting to get back to what we have for this next fiscal year. Another thing to note is that, you know, operations costs, you know, we don't know where we're going to be housed. I'm assuming it's not going to be in the, the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. I think it's you know, we'll see. Um, but we're going to be starting those discussions and getting feedback and talking to people. Um, Addison has been great as giving us, he's worked with at City Hall for a long time. So he knows the ins and outs and what makes sense. So I found our budget. If this is okay, I'll read off a couple of the job titles. Mm -hmm. Okay. Executive Director, of course, we need somebody to run it the CRB. We have the actual CRB board and here are people that we're going to hire to assist to help make the decisions when it comes down to the investigations. And so we have executive director, we put down investigators, five full-time investigators, one part-time, an auditor, policy analysis, outside legal counsel, because we also need to look at <laughs> Well, who will the CRB go to for legal advice? Because if you're going to the city attorney, then that might be a conflict of an interest. Um, what else do we have? Uh, mediation. There may be something in which, hey, uh, we need to pay or provide mediation between the community and neighborhood and some incident. We don't know. We want to put that in there. Outreach and support staff, a stipend for the board members. 
that's how we got our 1 million. And then six months would have been the 600. And now we're hearing about council members who are going to slice programs that are helpful to the community to give them more money on top of the raise that they're already giving them. Yeah, help us, come on, y'all got it. Cut the check, please. The police department, they're not gonna have to do their own investigations anymore. So what money they're spending, you know, they will still have to have like an HR function in case, you know, there's any other company that has human resources to investigate, you know, qualms between uh, individuals or, or whatnot, but we'll be representing the community and the internal affairs, you know, will probably still have to be there for some purpose, but not actually like they don't need. I want to pull out a quote that came from this RTD piece by Ali Rocket that quote, the proposal covers the salaries for executive director, at least five investigators, an auditor, a policy analyst, and support staff. It also includes fees for a legal counsel, mediation, and a stipend for board members. Nationally, mm-hmm. most boards only have some, but not all, of those functions, Costin said, who, as you mentioned, is a co-chair of this task force. So I just really wanted to point out to the listeners that what you all are asking for with this budget for these particularly paid positions will create one of the most wide-ranging civilian review oversight boards in the country. And that is because of the work of the state legislation that allows the subpoena, as well as this community engagement to say what you all need and and really pushing for the budget. Uh, I think on my end, absolutely you're correct. I saw somewhere where we would have our budget was like maybe nationally one of the up there in the top. But we are talking about, first of all, is Richmond, right? This is the capital of the Commonwealth. We are a major city here in Virginia. And we do have a police department that has ranked nationally for police brutality and have ranked nationally for incidents, specifically last year when they were doing the protests. So, yeah, we're asking for this money so it can get done. And they have it. And I there's a part of me that thinks, why wouldn't you at least make this stuff? to show that you actually kind of care. I mean, why you did, you voted for it, right? Some folks even campaigned on it. Why wouldn't you take the time and give us what we need? Not only that, shout out, and I'm sorry, but I'm gonna go ahead and do it. I will say Mike Jones, um, Councilwoman Lambert, they have either sent staff or been on that stuff in the staff member as well. When we have our meetings, no, we're not asking you to speak. But yeah, you kind of should be up there as a council person. Because how? what are you taking back to your um, constituents in your district? What do you know about what's happening with the CRB as a council member that you voted on? You don't because you're not up here. However, you're sitting making decisions for us and you're slashing our budget. We know why we need what we need and the money we need for. Nobody is trying to make coins off of this or bags. We don't get anything from this. You know, You pay for what you get. We want valid, qualified investigators. We want a valid, qualified executive director. So the money is there. You said that you wanted, you voted for it. You finally got us up here. Why not give us the funds needed to do what needs to be done? And I just wanted to highlight the police budget, which is upwards of $100 million. They are getting the salary increases. We're getting this American Rescue Act money. We all need to consider talking to our council members about not giving more money to the police out of that. But they can 
they can afford to spend the full 1.2 mil. Mm. Honestly, they could double that and they still wouldn't even be really putting a drop in the bucket to what they're willing to give the police on top of what they already have. And so, yeah, it is a bit mind boggling, but it does sound a bit like they're trying to set y'all up for failure and y'all are refusing to fail, which is so inspiring and, you know, really something that us as Richmonders should be cheering y'all on. Because when we think about public safety, this is the investments that we should be making. I think I heard y'all say that there were over 100 complaints on RPD officers last year, and it was like 75% of those were serious complaints. What happened to those? That's why we need you all, so that we can have a board that looks at such complaints. And I just also, since we're talking about the money, I want to just note that uh, per our past, prior to 2020, the average cost of one cop here in Richmond was just under 94 grand a year. And that's that's not including overtime costs. So when we're looking at this proposed budget, this is nothing. That's per cop, okay? We also need to remember that the bottom line starting recommendation is 1% of the police department budget for the CRB. So we are barely scraping it at 1 million if they're spending 100 million, right? And that is the lowest recommendation per the national standard. Follow the money. So please (laughs) let everyone know again, how can everyone continue to follow you all? Is there a social media Twitter handle that we can follow? Yes. Uh, our Twitter handle is RVACRB and our email is the same RVACRB at gmail.com. Um, I'll let Jewel kind of talk about what's on the outreach front. She's the subcommittee, uh, running the subcommittee. <laughs> so yeah, follow us on Twitter, our email address. It's a email address that just comes to the task force. We're the ones viewing it. We're the ones looking for recommendations. It's help questions that you all might have fingers crossed also in our task force budget is a website because we need to i want to pause for a second i'm gonna pause what you mean in a pandemic where everyone's living a virtual (laughs) life y'all need a website this seems excessive requests jewel i think she's laughing at how just i mean we're trying to keep track of what's going on here And yeah, we don't have a website, so we have had to go out and find a web designer, even though Richmond has a a nice new website. You think we would have a page, but God bless. So on our website, hopefully coming up very quickly, you will be able to not only find the link to our Wednesday meetings and to our subcommittee, you will find the recorded uh, videos of our meetings. Our meetings on Wednesdays are recorded as well, in case you miss it. All the information, once we get that survey going, that email, that survey link should be on our website. Um, So as of right now, yeah, we just have Twitter and a Gmail. And as you notice, we have a Gmail. We don't have a city email address. And Gmail and protected or nothing. Nothing. Girl, we are just out here. They just got us out here. God bless them. So we will have this information and the Zoom link to join all of these conversations within the description of this episode. Um, Jewel, Angela, we really appreciate you all coming on, having this conversation and doing this free labor for the community. Thank you so much for having this. Like, honestly, I brought up the seven demands from the summer 
And um, I think uh, Independent Review Board was like number five or number six. So we appreciate you all. Thank you so much. And I'm telling people who are listening, please, please, please help us. But no, <laughs> no feel free to reach out to us. We're open. We want to hear what you think. So thank you. Yes. All. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and having me and Jewel. And, uh, you know, it's it's imperative that we hear from the community. So we're trying to set up multiple ways to engage us. Um, we understand that some people may not be uh, comfortable going on to a Zoom call um, or meeting in person. So uh, please understand that if you do email us or, or message us through Twitter, that anything that you say either you know for for or against even uh, the CRB, that it will be it will remain confidential. Yeah. So I am definitely hearing a need for the community to pop into these Zoom calls. One thing we do know is that the state does not support our work of actually getting to true safety in our communities. So we definitely heard today from you all that our city is not putting the resources behind the work. And we know that that never stops our work towards freedom. So we got Angela and Jewel who are opening themselves up, uh, making themselves available through this Gmail, through their Twitter. Please reach out. Please make sure that your voices are heard. And thank y'all so much again for all the work that you do. Thank you so much thank for you. having us. Bye, y'all. Later. Goodbye. Thank you. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, that is all for this week on Race Capital. Reminder that Race Capital airs every Wednesday at 10 a.m. on WRIR LP. 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. If you like the show and want to support our work, remember to visit patreon.com slash race capital and subscribe. Become a patron of the show. As always, solidarity to those involved in the struggle and thank you for listening.